0: i'm carrie and i'm amy and you are listening to the perks of being a book lover this is a show where two different friends amy's like a golden retriever and i am like a grumpy cat talk about all the amazing advantages that come from
1: living a bookish life each week we do a deep dive q a with a book lover an author awesome a bookseller bingo a member of a book club marvelous we chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are Namrata Patel has been writing
0: for 20 years, but it wasn't until the pandemic that she had more time to work on it. She had always been interested in dual culture and challenges of the diaspora, specifically Indians who had moved to the United States. The isolation of COVID really brought home how lonely life can be if you don't feel like you fit anywhere. Her debut novel, The Candid Life of Mina Dave*, follows a photojournalist who inherits an apartment from a stranger. The apartment in Back Bay, Boston, surrounds her with a close-knit network of other Indian Americans. Mina comes to learn more about herself and her culture, as well as understands the gift of found family and friendship through this experience.
1: The book comes out June 1st, but those book lovers who have Amazon Prime can download her book for free during the month of May with their First Reads program. If you subscribe to Amazon Prime, you are able to download one free book a month from the First Reads selections, which are editor favorites hitting bookshelves the following month. Just search First Reads in the search bar. But first, Carrie, I'm headed to Italy in two days.
0: I know. I don't see how you're not like freaking out.
1: Maybe you you are, and you're just keeping it on the DL. Actually... We just talked about how the fact that I am freaking out, which might be freaking you out because I've edited two episodes this week so that we would have one to broadcast while I'm gone. And so I've been in frenzy mode getting that done.
0: See, if you're in frenzy mode over there, I don't know what's going on. It's when you're like, can you listen to this tonight so I can get it done tomorrow because I'm getting on a plane Friday and then I start freaking out. Like if you're just an anxious bundle of nerves over in your house, I'm like, "Ah," but You know, when I have to become an anxious bundle of nerves, that's when I have a problem. I'm like, you know, you didn't have to do this.
1: I know. But, you know, as we've talked about, I am a rule follower and I like things to go a certain way. So there you go.
0: You are. Well, tell me. So, you know, normally you do all this reading before you go anywhere, but you have not been talking
1: about immersing yourself in Italian literature or whatever. Uh, no, I haven't talked about that because I haven't done it as of yet. I have some books downloaded onto my phone that I plan to read on the flight there and back. But I have to tell you that I have downloaded a lot of books on my e-reader because I am a little paranoid that I'm going to get COVID while I'm over there and they're going to put me in quarantine and that I'll have to stay there for 10 days. You and I know somebody who just went to Italy and one of their traveling mates that happened to them. And yeah. she was stuck in a room for like 10 days and they b- bring her food and sh- there was nothing for her to do. I am not going to be stuck in that situation. I have plenty of books downloaded on my <laughs> e-reader and I will not be
0: bored. <laughs> All I can say is I really hope that doesn't happen, you know, for your sake, but mostly for Chris's sake. That I would really, be sad. that would be, oh, I cannot imagine being stuck in a little room with you and you not being able to get out or go anywhere or do anything. And you just have to sit there.
1: Well, I would tell him to go ahead and just, just leave me. It's not a big deal. You know how we do that. Yeah. You you better not go without me. No, I really would. I really would want him to go ahead.
0: (laughs) Right. Right.
1: But I've been really searching because I Googled books set in Italy and a lot of them I'd already read, and mm. I don't really want to reread them. So, I—you ever finish a room with a view? I know we've mentioned this before. <laughs> I may throw that in my bag. I don't know. We'll see. It is in well, Florida. Wait a minute! I don't
0: think you have it anymore. I think you gave me my copy back. Do you have your own copy? Or I could oh, get okay. it from the library if I really wanted to. Okay.
1: But there is a book recently that came out. It's a new release called Six Days in Rome by Fra- Francesca Giaco. I think I said that right. And that sounds like something that I would like. It's Apparently, it's not very plot-driven. It's very character-driven and mm. ce- scenery. You know, that sounds pretty good. And then I just downloaded one, and I might not end up reading this, but it sounded kind of cute. It's called the My Italian Bulldozer Mm -hmm. by Alexander McCall Smith. He's the one who wrote the number one ladies detective agency. He has lots of different series, but they're all sort of light and feel good. And so I may try that one out. As you can see, I don't have a lot of deep, deep literature that I'm taking. I want light and fluffy. Something to make me feel good. Yep. that's That's okay. Well, and I also looked on the Strong Sense of Place website. You know, we interviewed Mel Juwan. Each episode, they feature a different place. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get some book recommendations from there. So I went on their website to look. They've not done Italy yet. Oh, well. I know. I know. Mel, you all need to do Italy. You needed to help me with this trip.
0: <laughs> Too late. Now Too you'll late. read books and they'll have to
1: contact yep. you. <laughs> this is This is
0: an exciting trip. I hope you don't get COVID. I hope that you have a wonderful time and that you are so busy seeing Italy that you you don't even have a
1: moment's chance to read. Well, I guess that'd be nice, but I think I'd feel weird if I didn't read at all. I think I still need to read a little bit. Okay. Rule follower. But for our listeners, we will have a rebroadcast next week, but then we'll be back the following week with a brand new episode. So I think we should dig into Namrata's episode. She was a ton of fun.
0: Namrata, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Namrata, when I read your book, I finished it and I was so excited. I texted Carrie. This book was so, so good. So I can't wait to talk to you about it. This is your debut novel, The Candid Life of Mina. Dave, can you just give our listeners the elevator pitch? You know, A little summary of just what your book's about.
2: Yeah, it's about a nomadic photojournalist who really doesn't have a family of any sort or a lot of connections. And she suddenly inherits an apartment in a brownstone in Back Bay, Boston. And uh, the story is really about her figuring out why she was the one who received this and what her connection to the building is. And it's a story about found family and friendships and really understanding that relationships are a two way street. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's really, really uh, exhilarating to know that it's out in the world and people are starting to read it.
1: Or the apartment that she inherits is called the Engineer's House. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued by the Engineer's House. And I'm wondering is that based on something real?
2: No, it was a conceit. So I do a lot of research and reading on dual culture identities and diaspora. And, you know, I did it in grad school and then I keep up with it. And I came across this article about 100 Gujaratis who came to MIT between 1920 and 1940, right before the partition, to learn how to rebuild India after, after the Raj left. And they purposely chose MIT versus going to study in the UK because I'm making some assumptions, but they wanted to not learn from the British way. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I, I came across this and I thought, this is a part of my history. I'm Gujarati that I never knew. And I talked to my parents and they were like, yeah, of course we knew that. And I'm like, okay, but nobody told me. <laughs> and I live in Boston. I walk the streets. I've been back and forth to MIT countless times. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And then The pandemic struck and, you know, our world just got really, really small. And I started thinking about community. I think all of us did, right? Like, because we define community in such a broad way that all of a sudden, like, it was just who was at hand or who was accessible or who you made time for because time became this weird thing. Mm -hmm. And the character of Mina came across my Creative mind. And I wanted to connect the two. So I used the fictional conceit of the engineer's house because I was like, it would have been really hard for them. Not necessarily the language, because of the Raj, they spoke English, but the culture, right? They didn't see people like themselves. They didn't have access to Indian spices or food. And, you know, and if it was turned over every two or four years, what if? A few stayed just as a way to give the people that were coming in and out a base, Mm -hmm. a sense of like place for them in the duration. So then the conceit became the engineer's house that those five families that were the original hosts then built families and stayed. And then I got to explore like third diaspora of assimilation and what that would be like. The engineer's house is is my favorite too. I wish it was real. (laughs) But it was also, I came to this country when I was eight, and one of the first apartment buildings we lived in, Hoboken, before Hoboken became super priced out for immigrants, we lived in a building where there were other Indian families, and we lived in communal ways because our neighbors watched us after school if our parents were gone uh, or working, you know, one time as a bratty teenager, I ran away from home and went upstairs to my uncle's house, like that's <laughs> where I ran away to. So we have this like collectivist way of living. And so I wanted to fuse some of that in there as well.
1: I had read somewhere that you had based a little bit of it on, you know, the the group of uh, Indian students who had come over to MIT back in the nineteen. 19- 30s and 40s, which is a lot earlier than I think most Americans think about the wave of Indian immigrants coming. People think of that in like the 60s and 70s. And so I just wasn't sure about the engineer's house itself. One of
2: the things was also this idea of putting it in Back Bay specifically, which is a very white space. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to locate it there because the people that were coming in and out in the twenties and thirties would have been in majority white spaces. And this is where they would have wound up because Boston was a different city back then. And so now it's not really known for like diversity, that area Uh, it's not white, but it's like upscale. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes all of the perceptions that come with it. So while this was a wealthy family, I really wanted to locate them in that space where It could have been in other more diverse parts of Boston, but that was a location I wanted to choose. And Marlborough Street is, in real life, one of my favorite streets in Boston. And I'm like, if I'm going to write this book, I'm going to put this house on my favorite street in Boston, which is just a gorgeous rows of Victorian houses and these ornate doors and gardens and balconies. It's just amazing.
0: So you talked as if you wrote this during the pandemic. Is that accurate? Yes,
2: I did. (laughs) Oh
0: my gosh. So what was that process for you? And and did the ideas, did those just sort of come when the pandemic happened and you had time to kill? Or had had the seeds dropped long before?
2: Yeah, I'm a muller. So I need to have something germinating in my head for a while. Mm -hmm. And then it starts gelling in my head. So I'd say that process of reading that article, wanting to do something, hearing Bina's voice in my head, figuring out a little bit of the story just in my head. I just start with questions. I was mulling and then the pandemic hit and some of the questions became reframed. All the questions that I was mulling were around like what does community look like? What does belonging look like? What does family look like? What if you're lonely or what if you're just, your job is out in the world and you don't have that place to land? And that's what really started it. And I think it was that confinement that helped me think through the story about her being out in the world and then yanking her out of that and putting her in a confined space, which was this house and this conceit of inheriting it and having to live there.
0: you know, most writers that we talk to, usually, at least until they have several books under their belts, they have their day job. So was that the case with you that you were, you know, you had your day job and you were juggling other things in addition to writing? Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yes. So I work in education equity and I, I've was working in another nonprofit organization at the time. I've since changed roles, but I didn't have a commute. And usually the commute and the day job and then the after commute and then taking care of yourself uh, or meeting friends or doing all these things took up way more time and writing was reserved for the weekends. And in this sense, the time where I would be doing other things besides working became a lot more, started putting it down. And then I'm useless after three PM, so I would get up <laughs> at five and oh my gosh. just write from you know six to eight before I started working and and that's really how it came about. Was yeah. Thanks for the time, but really not no thank you pandemic, right? right?
0: Right, you got a book out of it though, so that's pretty cool. Because okay. we were all drinking, or, you know, like <laughs> and, a lot more than that's what we so were doing. I-
2: I say I'm useless after 3 p.m. That's what I turned (laughs) to. Gotcha. (laughs) Gotcha.
0: (laughs) You know, you got the book done. What did it look like to get it published?
2: Yeah. So I've been writing, as you said, a lot of writers have multiple books under their belt. I've been writing, you know, for 20 odd years. Mostly it was an uphill battle because years ago you had very few Indian American authors, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were telling immigrant stories versus like hyphenated life stories. Mm -hmm. So I I would collect rejections, I would have story ideas, I wrote like one really awful memoir, which like you're 20 something, why would you need a memoir, right? (laughs) But (laughs) it was just just an exercise in constantly uh, writing. And then once I started taking the craft seriously, and classes with Grub Street, Gotham Writers Workshop, other classes, just ad hoc. I met other writers, started building my network and community, continued to improve on the craft. And then I few. I had a lot of misses and then I signed with uh, Sarah Younger. And at that time, because of my network and because of the industry, It's like, oh, rom-coms are a thing, so you should write a rom-com, right? So (laughs) I wrote one rom-com, it didn't sell. I wrote another rom-com, it didn't sell, mostly because they're good books, but I didn't really find my voice. I have a writing voice, but what my author voice was, and in this last book, everything sort of came together, and I really got to write the story I wanted to tell and talk about the things I wanted to talk about, and really felt like I'd learned and become comfortable in this type of writing of hyphenated lives themes but in a more lighter way versus like dark and yeah this process then you know took it out lake union was like yeah let's do this and here we are
1: I like that term you use, hyphenated stories or hyphenated lives. I've never heard that term before, but uh, it's kind of perfect. But I want to ask you because you say that your writing examines Indian-American diaspora and dual cultural identities. So just explain a little bit what that means.
2: After college, you start thinking like, well, where do you fit, right? I'm Indian in my house and my family and my community. But as soon as I step outside, I'm American. i sound American. I enjoy a good steak. I have assimilated. And so I was trying to figure out what this duality meant for me. And, you know, we're all like thinking about our place and our sense of home and what that means. So I turned to academic things and I started reading literature around diaspora and particularly Indian American. And then when I was in grad school, I decided to do my thesis on uh, how we craft dual cultural identities using consumption. So the jewelry I'm wearing, the the clothes, the signifiers of my multiple identities that are I'm surrounded by. And so that's the kind of work that I was really gravitating towards. And what I was reading at that time in fiction was really more about exploring immigrant assimilation, which was great and very helpful to see my culture being represented like that like Chitra Karuni, she was one of the first Indian writers that I read. And I was like, oh my God, somebody like us has a book in English, you know? (laughs) So I just started tinkering and I really just always wanted to write about us in our lives that were from a lens of assimilation or first and second or third diaspora assimilation, which is just takes different forms, like the way my parents are assimilated versus the way my nieces and nephews will be assimilated, right? Because You just continue this process of coming together as part of whatever this culture we create, whether we say majority culture or minority culture, we're just co-creating all the time.
1: Well, what's interesting is that in this book, Mina, your main character, was adopted as a baby by a white family. And she grew up knowing nothing about her past, except that she's brown and her parents are white. And she doesn't really have a sense of her heritage. And she is kind of okay with that until she moves into the engineer's house and she's exposed to the, these Indian American families. And suddenly she has this sense of sort of fitting in that she never felt before. And even though, you know, she came from this loving adoptive family they weren't Indian. And so there was a little bit of something missing. And it really made me think about interracial adoption in, in a way, because, you know, ultimately, I think if you're in a loving family, that's the ideal. But there is a little bit of something missing, you know, when you're not of the same culture, in a way. So I was just wondering if you had any experience with that, or new people who've experienced that?
2: Yeah, I have friends who have adopted outside of their race and you know are raising children a friend of mine has a daughter from China another friend with a son from Guatemala and raising them to also have a little bit of that cultural identity even though they don't share it Mm -hmm. by keeping their birth names as their middle name by enrolling them in school and things like that but if 20 or so years ago it wasn't like that and I have a a former colleague who was Indian, who was adopted by a white family. And she didn't really have any connection to that self. I think that's sort of after the fact of the story. For me, when I started writing it, it wasn't necessarily with that information or that thing in the back of my mind. What I really wanted to do was say, if you're lost, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to sound like Cindy (laughs) Lauper. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But if she was lost and she she just didn't know who she was and identity and like knowing your sense of who you are is so important to us that if you don't have a way of knowing, you just accept and you still find joy in life. Mm -hmm. And then if you're given the opportunity to know, how would you sort of handle that? I think the previous conversation we just had really helped me think about that. I hadn't thought about it from my own experience, but that investigation of like, where do I fit, Mm -hmm. even though I knew both of my identities, I just, you code switch or you toggle back and forth depending on what's relevant or what's needed. And until you realize like, Hey, I can exist in both spaces. It just takes a long process, Mm -hmm. or at least it did for me. I don't want to speak for other people.
1: And I don't know if you did this on purpose, but when I was reading the book, my husband said the candid life of Mina Dave. And I said, no, I think it's Dave because she's with a white family. And it, and I think it, her family in the book is Irish-American. Mm-hmm. So it would be Dave. But there is, I think, an Indian name that's Dave. Is that yes. is that accurate? So were yes. you going for that sort of double meaning there where she, you know, she has this white past, but also this Indian heritage yes because it
2: was a quirky or you could say very like affected way of writing and editors and and audiobook narrators are probably not happy with me about that but uh (laughs) (laughs) and even maybe you guys like just tell me how to pronounce your book it's really just starts as dave and she ends up as dave even though dave is not her name and is not connected right but um It's just this idea of like the spectrum of how you navigate assimilation. And earlier we were talking about my name and Namrata when I was growing up. That was not memorable for a lot of people, colleagues or non-Indian friends. So it became Namrata or it became Nam. And now I know what my relationship with each person is based on how they say my name. Hmm. And it's the very thing that I really wanted to play around with with the book without having the audio book in mind. <laughs> so, it was just one of those things that was, that was absolutely intentional. I don't know if I'd do it again, but that was absolutely intentional. Well,
1: I thought it was really cool because honestly, when I was reading the book, I didn't think about the Dave. Mm-hmm. I just took it at face value that it was Dave and she came from a white family. And so when my husband pointed that out, I thought, oh, well, that's really clever. That Thank little- you.
0: So I want to ask about Mina and her personality, because she's a a photojournalist. And so, you know, her preference is to kind of observe the world from this safe distance. And I'm wondering, you know, I was thinking about it, that writers, you know, the ones we've talked to, at least, they often tend to be very observant and introspective. So when you were writing about her, even though, you know, you, as far as I know, you've never been a photojournalist, did you use any of your own personality and perspective when you were creating her character? Or is that observational distance a tendency that you've just seen in others and wanted to explore?
2: It was a little bit of both. I wanted the lens between her and the world. And that's really, I have a good friend named Holly Pickett, who is an amazing photojournalist. So I had a good relationship with someone who could help me with that piece because you're right I can barely take a photo with my iPhone (laughs) uh, much less but I wanted that observational thing for her because she was keeping people at a distance and then obviously there's a little bit of you in everything you write Mm -hmm. and If you were to take a poll of 10 of my friends, which was not a hugger, and they'd all point to me, right? (laughs) I can keep people at a distance. That is my makeup. So part of that is sort of referential. And I think a lot of the, the way she navigates relationships and friendships was a little bit of my exploration throughout my life in terms of what it means to be close with someone versus be... An acquaintance, right? When I was younger, it took a long time for me to call someone friend. They would live in this gap or space until I felt like we met certain criteria. And good thing is you grow out of that, right? (laughs) And I think part of the pandemic exploration, we all probably did it in some way, shape, or form uh, about who we are and how we're navigating this was what does it mean to have these deeper relationships even if you're not necessarily daily connected to people.
0: Yeah, I think the pandemic, at least for me, you know, it sort of made me consider who are the essential people? Who are the people that if I don't hear from them, it's not gonna feel normal?
2: A know? lot of our friendships changed. Some that were distant became closer for me, and some that were close became distant. And yeah. I think that's just how we all sort of navigated these past three years or are still navigating. Right.
1: I want to get to that whole thing about friendship in a minute, because that's an integral part of this book. But I think first we need to talk a little bit about the aunties. <laughs> and so in the apartment building, uh, every apartment is owned by a different Indian American family. And there are three Indian American women, the aunties, who are intrigued by Mina because and Mina doesn't really know anything about how to be Indian. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they provide her with support. But but Mina also finds them frustrating in a way that everyone feels about, you know, family. And in this case, they're kind of her found family. So mm-hmm. why was that topic, that found family, important to you?
2: Yeah. So <laughs> we have a friends group in Boston, some of my close friends. And during the pandemic, we renamed our group Chat Friends Who Are Family, And it was just this idea of we redefine family or define people in in our lives as close or as distant to our family, right? And in collectivist cultures, the reason you call people aunties and uncles, even if we're not related, is just the sense of like, we're all related in some way, or we're all a family. And I really wanted to get that in the book was this idea of like, communal living isn't just their neighbors or their friends. They really do see themselves as family. And because they've been together for generations, it's a little bit more than just the close ties that they have. And they are in and out of each other's lives. They're in and out of their children's lives. They're in and out of everybody's lives because they see themselves as this like cohesive group. And for me, that was really important to tell a story about not necessarily just the families were born into, but the families that we collect along the way. And particularly for Mina, who has a very defined sense of what family is at the start of the book. And these aunties are sort of showing her that there are other ways, especially if you went through a loss and you feel like you no longer have family.
1: So I was very jealous because I never had anything like The concept of aunties in my family besides my actual aunt i know lots of cultures have that i did not have that but i'm jealous of it did you have something like that carrie Mm, no i had to think
0: about it for a minute no
1: yeah yeah. but (laughs) i adored these aunties though because they really made this book feel cozy I don't know if you're familiar with the author, Lisa Cross-Smith, but she's the author of a book called This Close to Okay, and reviewers have described her books as being like cozy literary fiction, and your book also gave me that feel. You know, you've got the apartment building, and you've got the aunties, and you've got the beauty of the seasons in Boston, and it made me want to snuggle down and live in the engineer's house myself, and so to me, the scene where the aunties come to Mina's apartment and teach her how to make a proper chai tea was like a seminal scene for me in the book was the chai tea scene as important to you as it felt to me oh yeah
2: absolutely okay
1: you know, <laughs> what's interesting
2: is you know Mina doesn't even know if she's Indian right and right. the aunties just assume she is mm-hmm. and she lets them go on with this assumption because what are you going to do because you don't have any other evidence to say I'm not right And as she's like discovering these parts of it, I thought that scene, I wanted her to experience family and a sense of community and culture with these aunties in a way that she's missed because she's been on her own since she was 18. And some of those instructional things as adults, there are gaps for her because she had to learn them either by herself or she had to find ways to navigate. And I thought about like all the things that my aunts, my mom, my family, my friends' moms taught me as an adult, the recipes, the food, the agreements around the culture, the things that say, oh, okay, I fit here and I know how to do this. She didn't have that. And I wanted that scene to really feel welcoming for her. And as a point where she wants to start being a part of it and she starts to open up a little, even though she's a self-proclaimed coffee person, right, in this way. and But she still uses the phone camera to keep a little bit of distance between her and them as they're going through this. But as you have read, these aunties will not be denied.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, and food plays such a big role as well, just with their relationships. And it's just always part of how the aunties connect with each other, how they... Connect with Mina in some places.
2: And I wanted to use Gujarati food particularly because what we eat at home is not what's in the restaurants. And so I wanted to really like do the parathas and things like that as a way to show Gujarati food. And then when it came to like the Diwali dinner, I wanted to show you know, we have this term fusion, but food evolves, recipes evolve. I'm sure you have family recipes that are passed down that somehow you make your own or you add, you know, instead of chocolate chips, you're adding, I won't say raisins because I'm not a fan of raisins (laughs) and cookies, but something. (laughs) I hope that's the most controversial opinion. out of (laughs) But I wanted to show when the groups would come in the 20s and 40s. And even in the 70s and 80s, they bought Indian spices and suitcases for whenever they visited India. It wasn't Patel Brothers or Indian grocery stores weren't a thing. And so it's easier now to actually have more authentic recipes than it was then. Mm. And I remember we came in the 80s. And I remember my mom, like, making a desi eggplant parmesan or desi lasagna, which she uses cumin and spices in the sauce and, you know, Campbell's tomato soup. There was always like a fry part of that with cumin and, and oil and onions and potatoes. It wasn't just add water. So I wanted to show like they were fully assimilated because they were born here. The aunties were right. And that, they would make tandoori turkey. So they would keep pieces of themselves part of that culture, but they would also have turkey because it's an American tradition on Thanksgiving to do that. Uh, So that's where I wanted to play with food and show the evolution and assimilation for the aunties from that lens.
0: When you first started writing, did you focus more your writing on the family connection as far as Mina and her family, or did you focus on the friendships? Or maybe you did both at the same time and and it was a simultaneous process.
2: You know, if I think about it, it was really the family. Mm. It was what I wanted to explore or what I was exploring was what is this family? The friendship thing sort of came because the aunties took over and they're so strong. (laughs) And in writing those characters, I had to like really examine friendship. And that's when the theme of, well, I get that Mina, Mina doesn't have family, but how does she navigate friends? And that's that was an added layer that I added in because just like you have to learn how to let people in, you have to learn how to be a good friend. And if you're missing those adult years where you just spent them in a solitary life, keeping people at a distance, that some of those tools or those muscles she hadn't exercised and she has to learn them. And so that's sort of how the evolution of that, because the aunties were really teaching me. And then in a sense, Mina, Oh, this is how you do this. It's a give and take. It's a two-way street. It's not just always taking.
1: Well, the aunties I think could give anyone friendship goals because they have a, such a close knit relationship but they're all a bit flawed, and they aren't perfect, and their friendships aren't perfect, and there are parts in the book where you see some of their their rocky times with the friendship, but still they never contemplate not being friends. And the aunties, each of their personalities is so strong, and one in particular can be... Know definitely unlikable at times. So, as a writer, how do you balance making your characters relatable and realistic versus likable? And I know lots of readers want to like, you know, their book characters. And did you feel pressure to make them all likable?
2: No, I I normally stay away from that uh, likability thing. I want my characters to have multi-dimensions, just like people do. And so I hope my readers find characters identifiable, right? Or relatable, but more in a, I could see parts of me. A lot of us are self-aware. We know the parts where we're like, yeah, I'm a bit much in this space. Mm -hmm. But if you're around friends and you're around people you trust and can be vulnerable with you can be a bit much and that's fine and I look at characters from that lens you know the the rom-coms I mentioned earlier that I wrote or the other stories that I wrote a lot of my heroines were passive and that's that was a feedback I constantly got was like oh your heroines are passive and I think That's a a, that's a very eastern way of storytelling because things happen to you and then you react to the world around you, but in a collectivist way, versus in Western cultures where individualism shines and we have this hero's journey or heroine's journey where you're the the propeller of action. And so even in this, I wanted to have that sense of she's both, right? When she has to take charge, she takes charge, and when she wants to move forward, she moves forward. But as you said earlier, she's also an observer and she does let things happen. So with the aunties being so strong, I needed to balance her out because the aunties could take their own hero's journey, each and every one of them. (laughs) And they'd be totally fine with making all the decisions and doing all the things. So, yeah, I wanted that duality. And people are complex. I didn't want to write to like one person is... And one person is good. I think even as the way the story unfolds and the, you learn about each auntie, you know, there are parts of each of them that you're like, yeah, this is not my cup of tea. <laughs> right.
1: When we haven't talked at all about, there is a little bit of a love story in this novel between the main character and a neighbor named Sam. Yeah, Sam. And you were saying that you had written some rom-coms before. But I wouldn't necessarily call this book a romance because not everything gets tied up in a bow at the end. But I think that readers who like romance will appreciate the sweet little relationship between Mina and Sam. So you must like romances or writing romances. Is that why you added that little bit of romance in your book?
2: You know, it's funny. I find writing romance hard. So Mm -hmm. those rom-coms were hard. I I'm more comfortable in this space of like a woman's story but there's like a richness around it mm-hmm. and that the love story isn't the main story. I will say that I think we all like a little love story in everything we consume because that's just who we are as humans, we're wired for that, right? And even like the Avengers, there's a little bit of love story mm-hmm. in there between uh the Hulk and Black Widow or I will have limited knowledge of the Avengers, but I'm watching. (laughs) And the stories that I do like and I read have a little bit of romance. And I wanted this book to also feel good, right? When you finish it, you want to feel good. And yeah, there are themes that are explored, but I also, because we were coming through or going through, or maybe still are, what we're going through to feel like at the end of it, you're like a little bit satisfied and a little bit happy.
1: <laughs> you, know? you achieved that. So That's I need it. to know though, what are you working on next? And are you going to write some books about each of the aunties now that we've talked about that? No. <laughs>
2: Sorry. Can I just say, everybody wants the auntie story. I had a reader who's like, can I get a spinoff of just the aunties? I'm like, "Y'all, this is me, this story. <laughs> Um, Maybe I can do some little novellas about them. They have such rich lives, right? Like they are just such intriguing people. But my next book coming out in a year, is about a perfumer who loses her sense of smell and she has to figure out what her new passion is. And I like to have a little bit of Indian history in each of my books. The setting is, is around Napa and it's the hotel industry, and over forty percent of motels and hotels are owned by Indian Americans, and a lot of them are Gujarati Americans. Oh and
1: wow!
2: So I wanted to set this around the hotel industry and have a little piece of history tied to it. Um, but obviously, she's a perfumer, and she this is her sense of smell. And there aren't aunties per se, but there are grandmas in this ah. that are probably even spicier and more daring oh and wow everyone was um, a spicy grandma, grandma, grandma right <laughs> yeah, there's a foursome that is like they're hard to keep under control as
1: i'm working <laughs> on this book right now <laughs> i love that that sounds so fun well i think now is a good time to take a little break uh, and when we come back we're going to talk about what we're reading We are back with Nimrata and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So, Carrie, are you in audiobook mode? Or are you in physical book mode?
0: Actually, right now I'm in like all the modes. I'm listening to an audiobook, I've got a book on Kindle, and I've got a book that's paper. So, I- I'm doing all of it simultaneously. The book I'm going to talk about, though, I finished not too long ago. It's called Leonard. My Life is a Cat by Carly Sarosiak. <laughs> and I have a feeling that when we do the end of this year's episode, you know, like our final hurrah, or when we do our, you know, beginning of 2023 and we talk about if one word that would describe our year, I have a feeling that's gonna be cat for me. You've had a lot of cat stuff. I on. know! And I, it's not like I'm intentionally doing that. It's just, I don't know. I think that's what I feel like reading about. Would I, you recommend
2: that book for people who don't like cats?
0: Uh, well, you know, that's hard to say because how much do they not like cats? Let me tell you about the book and then you might be able to judge a little bit better. Leonard is not actually a cat. Mm. He's an alien. And so the planet or the space in space that he lives, he's kind of like just a ball of energy, but he's always wanted to be a human. And so he thought that he was going to get to be a human and work at a national park and be like a park ranger. And things got mixed up on his way to earth. And so he became a cat and he is rescued by a little girl named Olive and her grandmother he's going to be picked up right so he gets this mm-hmm. small little chance the small opportunity to be a human and all of his alien friends are going to pick him up in yellowstone national park but he lands like in hilton head you know the south carolina area and so he has to figure out a way to get to yellowstone so it's not really about a cat it's about okay. an alien But he's in cat form. And he kind of does have a little bit of that cat-ish attitude. (laughs) The thing is, he's sort of trying to figure out how to be a human by observing humans. So he's watching Olive. And her father was killed when she was very young. And her mother is dating someone who's nice to the mother, but not super nice to Olive. And she's staying with her grandmother. And her grandmother works at an aquarium. And has some friends at the aquarium. So Leonard is learning about being a human by watching humans. And I won't tell you what happens, but, you know, there's some tension. Is is he going to return back to space and abandon his cat form? I say this as my cat has her lips on the bottom of the door and is meowing at me because she hears my voice. (laughs) Or is Leonard going to stay with Olive. So I won't tell you what happens. You'll have to listen to the book. But anyway, it was fast. It was about a cat. If you like cats, you'll enjoy it. And if you don't like cats, you can say, well, it's not really about a cat. It's about an alien. So
1: <laughs> it sounds like the movie E.T. I
2: was bit. just thinking that. I was like, E.T. meets Sabrina from- <laughs> <laughs> with the talking cat. Like, it was not really a cat. <laughs> yeah. So how would
0: you categorize it? It's a book for, I would say, starting at fourth grade and on up and honestly the reason I picked it (laughs) is because when I was looking for audiobooks the cover of the book is a cat with a space background so it looks like the cat is flying through space and he has these crazy like sunglasses on and it has the name Leonard in really big letters on the front. So that's why I chose it. Leonard, my life as a cat.
1: Well, it sounds sounds cute.
0: Yeah, it was. It It was fun. Namrata, what have you been reading?
2: Nothing as interesting as Leonard the Cat, (laughs) I will say. Or maybe differently interesting. I'm doing a lot of research for my upcoming books. I've been just knee deep in perfume books, chemistry books. But I read a lot of nonfiction. So Chuck Klosterman's new essays, the 90s. I think it's out, but I read an arc of that and it was just put me back in that space of the nineties and what we were all doing and how we all sort of have evolved from there. Was
0: there a chapter about grunge?
2: Oh, please. There were like three (laughs) essays about grunge and Gen X and all of that. I've read a lot of Chuck Klosterman, he's hit or miss, but I do like the way he sort of intersex music and pop culture together so he talks about gen x he talks about mtv he talks about grunge he talks about the what was the political landscape around that but mostly it was around 90s kids and this like indifference and how like this is that gen x generation that doesn't often get talked about and he like dissects why because millennials are talked about and obviously gen z is talked about but uh it's really an interesting grouping of essays. Some of them are, I will say, skippable, but there are a couple that just really hit home and you're like, yep, I was there oh, and I get it. That,
0: I've already put put that on my Goodreads TBR. If you are
2: a in the 90s or early
0: 20s, you, yeah. this is for you. Yep, yep. MTV, yep. <laughs> Grunge, yep. I'm going to have to check out that book. And Amy, yeah. maybe you need to because you're still trying to finish the Dave Grohl book. No, right? no, I finished
1: it. You finished, finished it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's I a did. Good book. It oh. was a good book. I did not really listen to much grunge in the '90s, mm-hmm. and I know I must be an anomaly, but I—I I mean, I listened to a little bit of Nirvana. I didn't really listen to any Foo Fighters. And after listening to Dave Grohl's uh, memoir, I am, like, obsessed with him now. And now I'm listening to the Foo Fighters. So there you go. That's- and his mom's a teacher, right? Yes. yes. And I love him because he loves his mother so much. How can you not love somebody who loves their mother so much? So anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like you. I didn't
2: listen to a lot of grunge. I only knew the Nirvana songs that were on the radio. Right. But I did too. dip my toe or my whole foot into Pearl Jam. So... <laughs> Cool.
0: I, I I was a pearl jam girl I was in okay. deep deep
2: deep
0: with pearl jam oh yeah yep that's gonna be a book that I'm talking about later on this year
2: I do want to give a shout out to word by word by Corey Stemper I read her book and that's when I decided that Neha would be a lexicographer because I just found that book fascinating about how dictionaries are written cool
1: yes we we didn't mention that when we were talking about your book, but the the woman who dies who leaves the apartment to Mina, who she's never met, uh worked for Merriam Webster, I think. Yes. Yeah. In Lexington, Massachusetts. It's so And so she has this like fascination obsession with, with words.
0: Well, Amy, what have you been reading? You said you finished the storyteller.
1: What else did, have you been that's reading? That's not what I'm talking about. Because we have talked enough about Dave Grohl on this <laughs> podcast over the last like month since you talked about it. I'm going to talk about a book that's in kind of a completely different direction than which y'all discussed. I'm going to talk about a book called Tidepool by Nicole Wilson. And I love coming upon a book that was never on my radar. And I kind of take a chance on it and it ends up being a complete joy. And this book is one of those books. So Tidepool is a gothic dark fantasy about sea monsters, basically. And it's set on the shore of Maryland. And so it's set in 1913, and our protagonist is Sorrow Hamilton. And She's in her 20s. She lives in Baltimore with her wealthy father and her older brother, Henry, who she adores. Her father named her Sorrow because her mother died in childbirth with her. And so she and her father have never been close, but her brother, Henry, has really been her best friend and her confidant. So her father, you know, is looking to invest some money, sends Henry to this small coastal town in Maryland called Tidepool to see if he can interest the townspeople in having him invest some money into developing their community to become a seaside tourist destination. Sort of like Ocean City, Maryland. But Henry never returns home. So Sorrow decides to sneak out in the middle of the night against her father's wishes to travel to Tidepool herself to find her brother. And when she gets there, she finds a desolate, dark place that smells like dead fish. And the whole town has a sort of a shabby, depressed look and feel about it. And once she's in Tidepool, she finds all the townspeople very uncooperative in her desire to find her brother. But there are two people who seem especially odd, Widow ada oliver and her brother quentin and they live in this huge mansion on the hill sort of lording over the town and sorrow comes to find out that there is something seriously sinister in the basement that makes squishy noises when it walks so sorrow must figure out what to do next especially since the townspeople seem to be actively working against her and will she ever be able to leave tidepool This book has been described as a Lovecraftian dark fantasy book. And for those who may not be familiar with that term Lovecraftian, and I wasn't until I saw the series Lovecraft Country, Lovecraftian refers to the author H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote weird fantasy and horror fiction. And one of his trademarks were monsters that had unnatural anatomies. You know, they were frightening in an otherworldly way. And in this book, sorrow has to deal with creatures from the water i wouldn't call this a horror book even though there are monsters it's more freakish than scary and it reminded me of the feel i had when i read and i saw the series of unfortunate events books and films weird scary things are happening but it feels more fantastical So imagine crossing the creature from the Black Lagoon with a series of unfortunate events. Or if you've read The Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, it also has the same vibe. Both of those book series that I just mentioned are middle grade book. This is an adult book with all adult or young adult characters, but it does feel a little young at heart. It was just really a fun romp, and I found myself drawn back to reading this book when I was supposed to be reading other things. (laughs) So that's always the sign of an entertaining book. So this is Nicole Wilson's debut novel, and it was published last fall, and it's been nominated for a Bram Stoker Award for Best First novel. And apparently she wrote this book when COVID started and she was laid off from her job. So this was an excellent use of her time. It was a better effort than my sourdough starter attempt during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the name of the book is Tidepool by Nicole Wilson.
2: Cool. That sounds really good. I wrote that down. I That's not a genre I read, but when you said Lovecraftian, I'm like, now I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, yeah, I
1: know. I, I don't know. It was
0: just fun. Very good. I've added multiple books to my list now. So thanks to both of you. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Numberta is going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Namrata and she's going to answer her questions. All right. Number one, you have lived in Spokane, London, and New York City. What led you or drew you to all of those places?
2: Uh, Spokane was for a job and I was in Boston at the time, finished graduate school. I was teaching at Emerson. I was working in the travel industry and I got an opportunity to go there. But I had these visions of like, lumberjacks and professional bull riders and being completely out of my element. And I was like, I'll try this. And I had, you know, a nomadic heart. And so I went and it is everything and nothing like I imagined. So I don't know where I wound up, but here I am. And I really learned to be an outdoor person, like an outdoor cat, having grown up really indoors and learned how to hike and their motto is near nature, near perfect. And it's just lovely and small. And then London, I decided I wanted a career break, quit my job, got a work visa to London. I arrived the day Lehman Brothers crashed and that was fun for me. So I took a bit of a career break, did some consulting, and then came back to New York for another work thing. And then I moved back to Boston. But I, I like the idea of discovering something or doing something new or different. And I don't know about you all, but how you plan travel. Like I don't plan travel. I just show up and I just like <laughs> to be. And then I figure out what I need to do. I usually have to have a place to stay because that's important for safety and other things. But otherwise, I just loved having the opportunity to live in different places and just being, and. Uh, that I wound up back in Boston.
0: <laughs> wow. I can tell you that is not the way either of us travel. <laughs> we are way too square for that kind of spontaneity.
2: <laughs> but I love traveling with people like you because then I don't have to plan anything. I just go for the ride.
1: <laughs> we took a trip to Maine with my husband in the fall, and we were just sort of driving up the coast of Maine. And <laughs> And I said to Carrie, I think we're just going to fly by the seat of our pants and stay wherever we want to stay whenever we get there because yeah, good luck with that. You're not <laughs> going to be able to do that at all and she was right, I couldn't <laughs> Alright, on I to know. question number two. If you are looking for a book that totally sucks you in, what author is your go-to and why?
2: Oh, well I'm going to say if I'm like in my feels I'll go to persuasion Jane Austen Mm. just like that is angsty mind candy you know we talked earlier about me keeping my distance Mm -hmm. so sometimes like I am one of those people like I need a good cry I'm gonna (laughs) read this book or I'm gonna watch seal magnolias like I just need something that makes me ball so that's the one that like I'll go to and she hasn't written anything in a long time but just a couple of weeks ago I picked it up Julie James who used to write these like FBI series. They're just like quippy banter, and that's fun for me. Mm-hmm. But if honestly, if you talked about like curling up on the couch with a blanket, that's persuasion for me. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome.
1: That's very. That's cool. yeah. my favorite of her books.
2: Mine persuasion. too.
0: Mine too. All right, last question. So now that we know what an adventurous traveler you are you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Why did you decide to take that on? And what was the hardest part of climbing that you didn't anticipate?
2: Okay, so this is one place you do have to plan. You can't just show up. (laughs) I'm ready to climb. (laughs) Everything I, I said about question one did not apply to this. My sister was doing some volunteer work in Zanzibar for a couple of weeks. And before she left, she's like, hey, would you want to come climb Kilimanjaro with me? I looked it up, and I was like, okay, I think I can do this. And I trained for a couple of months, a lot of walking. And I'm like, okay, this is a walker's mountain. And I've read, you know, Into Thin Air by Krakauer, and, you know, I'm prepared. <laughs> I love that. I read, I read this book, I'm prepared. Spoken
0: like a true book lover.
2: i <laughs> just like, and... I think there were a lot of parts of that that I did not anticipate. I knew it was going to be hard. I wasn't naive. I know oxygen deprivation. But for me, two things happened. One was I didn't realize like how altitude would affect me. Fortunately, I didn't have altitude sickness. What I did was lose my appetite and i couldn't eat and our guides oh. had to force me to have catberry. When in your life is someone forcing you to eat chocolate and oh watermelon and pineapple? But that's what happened. And so i didn't have a lot of energy and i got hurt. And i got hurt in the the most uneventful way. I went to use the restroom tent and i tripped on a rock and i thought i sprained an ankle. So i just kept my boot on for the whole time but I was weaker, and I was hurt, so I had to climb most of it with just my guide and me, and my sister and the rest of the group were just at a different pace, and um, I had to get to camp by cutoff, like by dark, and so those were the two things that I didn't anticipate, and it was really informative, like hindsight, I definitely did suffer a lot of stress, And I hesitate to call it trauma, but I did suffer a lot where I couldn't even look at the journals I kept on that trip for like months afterwards. And turns out I didn't sprain my ankle, I tore a nerve in my (gasps) back, which is what happened when I tripped. And so I had to take a year and a half of physical therapy to get my mobility back without a limp. Like I wasn't immobile, but I had a significant (laughs) pain. But it did really teach me perseverance. And when things, test you. And we, we all have different forms of test, and you really figure out what perspective, right? Like what is a test and what is hard and then what is not. And I don't have fear in the same way I used to. I have real fear about things, but I don't have like fear of not being able to do something
1: anymore.
0: Wow. I mean, that sounds like a, a story there too. So when you finish the the book about the grandmothers and the perfumer, I think you need to work on number three.
2: Yeah, maybe. I don't know if I'm ready to revisit that space.
0: Wow. It has been a real treat talking with you. You're a fascinating person. If the book wasn't enough, you're just a fascinating person. Thanks so much for sharing your evening with us.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to both of you and I can't wait to listen to all of your other episodes. Uh
1: You can find Namrata Patel on Instagram at Namrata Patel author on Twitter at Nam Patel or on her author website, nampatel.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.